O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name and how marvelous is your mercy. Would you please meet us in your word? Make this text help us to want you more. May this text help us to sin less. We want to have a greater understanding of your sovereignty after walking through this text. We want to have a greater strength to persevere after walking through this chapter. We are prone to sin. Grant that we may experience thy restraining grace. That at the sound of thy voice, we flee temptation. That in the moment of decision, we see you as more beautiful. That at our weakest moment, you infuse us with strength to resist. We are prone to sin, and we are also prone to doubt after we've sinned. So grant that we may hear thy assuring voice. Assuring us that by thy stripes we are healed. That you were bruised for our iniquities. That you were made sin for us. That all our sins are buried in the sea of your cleansing blood. We are guilty but pardoned. Lost but saved. Wandering, but found. Sinning, but cleansed. That would be sufficient, Lord. Grant thy restraining grace and thy assuring voice. This is our corporate plea. Amen. We preach through entire books of the Bible at FFC. We do this because we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. We also believe in the necessity of Scripture. You need every book of the Bible in order to be complete in Christ. God has revealed unique aspects of His character in each book. And you're incomplete without God's revelation of Himself to you from that book. We alternate books. New Testament, then Old Testament. We do not live like God has only left us with pocket New Testaments. The Bible of the early church was the Old Testament, so we preach it. It's inspired just like the New Testament, so we preach it. Some pastors say they believe in the inspiration of all Scripture. Then they preach for 30 years and spend 90% of that time in the New Testament. You show people you believe in the inspiration of the Old Testament by preaching out of it. I'm following in the footsteps of Jesus. He preached out of the Old Testament. Jesus preached himself from 2 Samuel. Now, I plan to be in 2 Samuel for 22 Sundays. <laughs> then I discovered that John Calvin preached 87 sermons out of the book. He preached them in French. One of the retired pastors in our church, Tim Tiffner, preached 61 sermons out of 2 Samuel. I've decided to double him. So I'm going to preach 122 sermons out of this book. I'm joking. Take a deep breath. 22 Sundays. 
I want this to be a fruitful book for your soul. I really want it to reveal truths about your God that are new to you or that have grown stale to you. In order for you to get the most out of this sermon series, you're going to need to do a few things. You're going to need to familiarize yourself with the genre, familiarize yourself with the backstory, and familiarize yourself with the first chapter. Familiarize yourself with the genre. <laughs> you know, I started as a teacher. I I've always had the heart of a teacher. I can't just teach the text. I must teach you how to teach the text. We're going to do that in familiarizing ourselves with the genre. Then familiarize yourself with the backstory. You, you say, why are we going to do the backstory? You can't even understand the first verse of 2 Samuel without the backstory. And then finally, familiarize yourself with the first chapter. We're going to take them one at a time, and we'll begin with the first. Familiarize yourself with the genre. We just finished walking through the book of Revelation. Now we are walking through 2 Samuel. We are switching from apocalyptic literature to Old Testament narrative. I want to reorient you to the genre. You will be in a mess if you look at 2 Samuel like you looked at Revelation. You can't read historical narrative like you read apocalyptic literature. You read it differently, I preach it differently. You need to understand the genre to interpret it correctly. You can't read 2 Samuel like you read Revelation, just like you can't read Band of Brothers like you read Lord of the Rings. Band of Brothers is historical. Lord of the Rings is sanctified fantasy. You must discern the genre. Historical narrative makes up 40% of the Old Testament. It's history. The author is intending to get across real historical events that took place in time and space. When dealing with historical narratives, we want to avoid the most common mistake. Moralizing the text. You say, what is moralizing? Moralizing is drawing an attractive characteristic from a person's life and challenging people to have that in their life. Old Testament narratives are too easily reduced to moral examples. Be like David, don't be like Saul. Imitation of positive figures in the text and avoidance of negative figures in the text. From Nehemiah, they pull leadership principles. Be like Nehemiah. Nehemiah ends up being the hero of the story. But Nehemiah isn't intended to be the hero. God is. Make the hero of the story the hero of the sermon. By lifting a principle, okay, by lifting a principle from the text and dropping it in the pew, Preachers moralize the stories found in the Old Testament. I'll give you the classic example. David and Goliath. In moralizing the story, you become David and the giant becomes whatever problem you're dealing with. The giant could be the problem of depression or looking for a job, bashfulness, starting a business, whatever. You're told to, to slay the Goliaths in your life. And the speaker may say, you need to get your five stones like David and go after your giant. Well, that sounds good. But what if you throw all your stones and your giant doesn't fall? What if he laughs at you? 
Was the purpose of this story to imitate David? Was the author's intent, which we must submit to, was the author's intent in that historical narrative for you to imitate David? No. It's man-centered preaching with moral instruction. And it's insufficient. And you say, well, Kyle, how, how do you preach that story without moralizing it? In the first Samuel series, I showed you three different ways to get to Christ from that text. And I did it, I, I, I don't do it in every sermon, but I did it in that one. I, I did it three different ways to show you that preaching Christ from the Old Testament is not monolithic. You can do it in different ways and in, and in different degrees. Graham Goldsworthy <clears throat> says it best, and I quote, Texts are taken out of context and applications are made without due concern for what the biblical author which is, which is ultimately the Holy Spirit, is seeking to convey by the text. Problem-centered and topical preaching becomes the norm, and character studies treat the heroes of the Bible as isolated examples of how to live. End quote. In the States, there is more heresy preached in application than in, in interpretation. Second Samuel deals with one main person. David. David is mentioned over a thousand times in the Bible. He's captured the imaginations of artists and sculptors. He's a great man, but don't get it twisted. He's just a man. The Bible doesn't belong to David. David belongs to the Bible. David does some good things. He also does some bad things. He commits adultery. He kills a man. He ignores abusive sin in his own family. He refuses to discipline his children. He sweeps sin under the rug. We don't want to go through 2 Samuel looking for people to imitate. Let's not lose the storyline. David gets out of the gate quickly, but he doesn't finish well. There are more murders around him than in a Shakespeare play. Plus, in one passage, he's dancing in the street with no clothes. Don't be like David. I've heard a lot of sermons from, from Old Testament narratives. And usually at the end, I always think, your Old Testament sermon needs to get saved. Where is Christ? We are seeking to do Christ-centered preaching from this Old Testament narrative. Christ serves not only as the Savior of sinners, but also the Savior of biblical interpretation. J.L. Packer said, Scripture is God preaching. That's true. And God is always preaching about Christ. To go back to the Australian, the Aussie Goldsworthy, he says, all biblical texts in some way testify to Jesus Christ. This make, get this, this makes him the center of biblical revelation and the fixed reference point for understanding everything else in the Bible. End quote. The, the, the divine author created unity in the unfolding drama of redemption. Preaching a single text without considering the whole context of Scripture distorts the unity God created. In 2 Samuel, we are not studying a single act, but the progression of God's revelation of Himself in the Bible. 
Every text stands somewhere in relation to Christ. Now, now hear me. We don't need to get into allegory. Christ does not stand in every text, but every text stands somewhere in relation to him. Christ doesn't stand in 2 Samuel chapter 1, but 2 Samuel chapter 1 stands somewhere in relation to Christ. The Old Testament tells the story which Jesus completes. Christ fulfills, or better, fills up the Old Testament. Old Testament texts are either predictive of Christ or, or preparatory for him. This one is preparatory for Christ. Calvin said the scriptures should be read with the aim of finding Christ in them. Uh, a, young, a young pastor wanted feedback and he asked Charles Spurgeon what he thought of his sermon. Spurgeon said, it was a bad one. <laughs> Why? You didn't preach Christ. Christ wasn't in the text. Spurgeon said to the young preacher, don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London? Yes, said the young man. Ah, said Spurgeon. And so from every text in Scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the Scriptures, that is Christ. And my dear brother, your business is when you get to a text to say, now, what is the road to Christ? And then to preach a sermon running along the road towards the great metropolis Christ. And I have never yet found a text that had no such road. And then Spurgeon continued. If I ever do find one that doesn't have a road to Christ in it, I will make a road. I would go over hedge and ditch but I would get at my master, for a sermon is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill unless there is a savor of Christ in it. <laughs> After expositing a psalm, I asked feedback from one of my pastor friends, which is what we do around here often. After expositing a psalm, I asked feedback from, from a pastor friend. What'd you think? He was filling it out and he was complimentary of some things. He said, you nailed this, you nailed this, you nailed that. And then he said, I just, I just want to leave you with one question. And I said, okay. He said, where was Christ? And I had to admit, he wasn't in my sermon. We are not looking for people to imitate in this historical narrative. We are looking to see how God used history to accomplish his purposes in Christ. Familiarize yourself with the genre. Secondly, familiarize yourself with the backstory. Now, if you want the 22-hour version of the backstory, <laughs> listen to the First Samuel series. Otherwise, I'll give you the 10-minute version here. Ever since Moses led the nation of Israel out of Egypt in Exodus, they had consisted of a loosely organized confederation of tribes. They were ruled through designated leaders called judges. People like Gideon and Samson. This was a 400-year period. Tribes were independent and joining only temporarily for the purposes of joint military adventures. Israel had no standing army, just individual tribes. 
But there grew a strong and popular demand for a king. They wanted a king who would go out and fight their battles. Because judges were limited by their geographical boundaries and, and didn't appoint a successor, they wanted a leader to unite the tribes. 1 Samuel records Israel's transition from tribal confederacy to a nation under a king. 1 Samuel records the end of the office of the judges and the beginning of the office of king. This is quite a big transition in God's unfolding redemptive story. From this moment on, God's people are looking for a perfect king. And they think they found him. Saul. He's head and shoulders above the rest. And he just looked like a king. Tall, strong, imposing. Much like your preaching pastor. <laughs> we, we had such high hopes for Saul. He was anointed king by Samuel. The people rejoiced at God's anointed. 1 Samuel records the tragic account of Saul's miserable reign. In 1 Samuel 15, God commanded Saul in one of the battles to kill all the Amalekites. Every one of them. God wanted this done because the Amalekites were the first to oppose Israel after the Exodus. When Israel came out of Egypt, the Amalekites ambushed them from behind. It was a dirty attack. They picked off the weak, the sick, the elderly. They brutally murdered the stragglers. Israel was alone and defenseless in the wilderness, and the Amalekites pillaged them, ruthlessly abusing the captive women. God harbored an ancient grievance against the Amalekites. Saul went to do his job, and he killed a lot of Amalekites, but not all of them. He did partial obedience. God was not pleased. God's disciplinary judgment, he would rip the throne from Saul. God sends Samuel on a search for a new king. Samuel finds God's man in the fields of Bethlehem. He's the forgotten son of Bethlehem. Yeah, I got, I, you know, I do have one more little runt in the field. Samuel anointed David as Israel's next king. But he was just a boy. Years will pass before he actually holds the office, but it's all in motion. When Israel faces their ancient enemy, the Philistines, the Philistines send out their giant, Goliath. Now Israel should send out their giant, Saul. He's head and shoulders above everyone else, the closest thing Israel has to a giant. But Saul in this moment was not a king who would go out before his people and defend them. Instead, little David goes and kills Goliath and cuts off his head. And he does it without Saul's giant sword. Goliath of, of Gath is dead. David and Jonathan, Jonathan is Saul's son, David and Jonathan become best friends. Jonathan is old enough to be David's dad, but they have a tight friendship. David becomes one of Saul's top military men, and he climbs the ladder rather quickly. He comes back from one battle, and the women in the streets are singing. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. This ate Saul up. Saul hated David. Saul chased David. 
Saul lied about David. Saul tried to kill David. He turned into a big green monster. Jealousy overtook him. Driven away to escape Saul's murderous plot on his life, David is now a fugitive of the law and will be that way for 10 years. David had plenty of chances to kill Saul, but refused every time. Saul would be made aware and then temporarily repent and call off the chase, but it never lasted. Saul ran David clear out of Israel's territory. David went to live in the Philistine territory. The Philistine king was more than happy to grant David refuge and give him a little country town, Ziklag. One day, while David and his 600 men were out on a mission, the Amalekites invaded Ziklag. With all the men gone, it was an easy target. What they did to Ziklag is what modern-day Boko Haram does to the villages in Nigeria. They burned the houses, pillaged the town, kidnapped the women and the children, intending to sell them on the slave markets of Egypt. These savages put little children in cages and young girls in cages and threw the cages onto wagons to be pulled by mules. L little fingers coming out of the grates calling for their mothers. Little girls screaming for their dads to come and save them. When David and his men returned from their mission, they saw smoke billowing in the distance. They broke rank and began running towards Ziklag. 600 military men falling on their knees, beating the ground with their fists, screaming for their wives and children. Why? So David and his 600 men set out to pursue the Amalekites. The Amalekites are nomads. They, they, they don't have a hometown. They're constantly moving. They're desert dwellers. David and his men found them in the desert, <laughs> and they ripped them to shreds. 600 men against two to 3,000. David plundered them, took all their jewelry, gold, goods, animals. Nothing was lost, not a piece of money, nor a garment, not a child, not a wife. David and his men recovered all. Hugs and kisses and families reunited. While David fought the Amalekites down south, Saul and Israel fought the Philistines up north. There were two battles, one down south and one up north, David leading one and Saul leading the other. David's victory over the Amalekites was a mere border skirmish compared to the clash of armies between the Israelites and the Philistines. David won his skirmish, Saul lost his battle. The Philistines carried the day and trounced Israel. The last chapter of 1 Samuel reveals to us that Saul was badly injured from a Philistine archer. Evidently, he's taken a couple of arrows and he's lost his ability to run. He's bleeding out, but knows this is going to be a slow death. Saul didn't want the pagan pigs to come and make a game out of killing him. They will abuse me, stick things in places where I would rather die than experience. Saul asked his armor bearer to kill him. The armor bearer refused to touch the Lord's anointed. So Saul, Israel's first king, fell on his own sword. There are only four examples of suicide in the Bible, and this is one. Saul's armor bearer 
When he saw Saul commit suicide, he followed suit. When the Israelite army received word that their king was dead, they all made a run for it. Hope is lost. The king is dead. Now, church, I, I do find it interesting that Saul died doing what he was supposed to do. Protecting the nation as its king. He died in battle. He went before his people and with his people to battle. And that's what Israel wanted in a king. What they didn't calculate was their nation could lose battles strictly based on the disobedience of their king. The next day, the Philistines came to strip the slain, to, to do a mop-up operation, and they found Saul fallen on Mount Geboa. So they decapitated him. They cut off the head of Israel's giant. Israel did this to their giant. Now they will do this to Israel's giant. The king is dead. Saul's three sons, including Jonathan, die in battle. They did not die by suicide, however. 2 Samuel opens with these words. After the death of Saul. You could title the book, After the Death of Saul. 2 Samuel is not the only book that begins with a death. Joshua begins with, After the Death of Moses. Judges begins with, After the Death of of Joshua. Second Samuel begins with after the death of Saul. Familiarize yourself with the genre, familiarize yourself with the backstory. Now, familiarize yourself with the first chapter. Let's dive into verse 1. This is God's word. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Let's pause here. David returns home to Ziklag. He's licking his wounds and hugging his family. The city is still charred. The houses are still demolished. David and his 600 men have their families, but nothing else besides open wounds and unanswered questions. What now? Our city is destroyed. Ziklag, like Rome, can't be rebuilt in a day. Where are we going to sleep tonight? Where are my toys, Daddy? Where's my blankie? For two days, these unanswered questions hovered over Ziklag. The women nursed their warrior husbands back to health. The men began to pile the debris. Someone has to clean up after a devastation. Verse 2. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Now David has been waiting to hear news from Israel's battle up north with the Philistines. He's been on the lookout for a messenger. Suddenly, breaking into sight is this young man looking all disheveled. He's ran 50 to 80 miles, a three-day trip. David sees him breaking over the horizon. His clothing braces David for bad news. 
The young man is wearing the customary outward signs of grief. Verse 3. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. The king is dead. Verse 5, Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? How do you know the king is dead? Then the young man begins narrating the story. So we have this young man's story beginning in verse 6. And the young man who told him said, By chance, by chance, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Geboa, and there was Saul leaning on a spear. Apparently, barely able to stand, badly wounded, supporting himself on his weapon. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here am I. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Now let's, let's break this narration for a minute. Imagine David's surprise. He had just killed this young man's uncles and cousins in battle. He just returned three days ago from striking down all the Amalekites. The man continues narrating verse 9. And Saul said to me, stand beside me and kill me. For anguish has seized me. And yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him. Because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. In other words, he says he's mortally wounded. I stood over him and finished him off. It was a mercy kill. I put him out of his misery. He continues, and I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet, this was a royal bracelet, that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to you, my Lord. Now, mystery shrouds this guy. He claims to be an eyewitness of the entire event, but something just seems off. You just happen to be there? How do you stumble on a, onto a battlefield where the killing is still going on? No one happened by chance to be on the beach at Normandy on D-Day. David is no Sherlock Holmes, but something just, just isn't adding up. He probes the credibility of the young man's knowledge of the situation. See, David could read people. He knew Saul's heart began to turn against him. He saw it before Jonathan saw it. David knew something was off with this guy. We, the readers, we know something that David doesn't know. This young man's story is conflicting with the story of Saul's death in the last chapter of 1 Samuel. The narrator puts 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel chapter 1 next to each other so that you can see the contradiction. 1 and 2 Samuel were not separate books. We separated them in our Bibles, but they were originally one. The narrator is putting these Two opposing accounts side by side so you can see the contradiction. It's deliberate to show you the lie. 
Our historical narrative is accurately recording this young man's lie. We believe the narrator's version, not the Amalekite's fabrication. He's rewriting himself into the story. Sure, he got some details right. Saul was injured by the archers. Saul did ask someone to kill him, his armor bearer, but he refused, so Saul killed himself. The young man must have been close enough to witness all of this. What's his motive for lying? This Amalekite thinks he'll get into the king's favor. He'll ingratiate himself to the king. He assumes David is desperate to become king. And he's attempting to turn Saul's death into his own advantage. And I know Saul is your rival, your arch enemy. He's dead now. Thanks to me. He represents himself as the slayer of Saul. He's an opportunistic liar. He wanted to curry favor, flattering David, buttering him up. He brought kingly regalia to David. He brought the crown that the king of Israel wore. He's bending down on one knee, handing David the crown. The first person to say, you are king to David, is an Amalekite. Isn't it interesting how God works? Dramatic irony here. The Amalekites were at the center of Saul's downfall. These are the Amalekites that Saul failed to eliminate. Now when Amalekite brings news of Saul's death, the irony does not escape David. Saul had been ordered to kill the Amalekites. Now David hears that Saul ordered an Amalekite to kill him. Sure, it's a lie. But it's still dripping with irony. Here's what I think about this Amalekite. He's a grave robber. He's a battlefield looter. He scavenges among the dead and he came across these personal tokens of royalty and attempted to use them for his own advantage. Think of this. An Amalekite was plundering Saul while David was plundering the Amalekites. When David saw Saul's crown and his kingly bracelet, he knew Saul was deceased. It was all the proof he needed to confirm the king is dead. Now, the reader has known Saul is dead. We've known that for two days. David is just finding it out. We're not surprised. David is. Verse 11. And David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until the evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son. And for the people of the Lord. And for the house of Israel. Because they had fallen by the sword. This is David's father-in-law. He married Saul's daughter Michael before Saul took her away. This is Saul's... This is, this is David's father-in-law and best friend Jonathan slain on the battlefield. I don't think the Amalekite is expecting this response. <laughs> I think he was expecting shouts of joy. The path for David to become king just opened wide. How could you not rejoice over this? The old antagonist is dead. If the roles were reversed, Saul would have rejoiced. Thrown a party. Popped the champagne that David was dead. 
Despite Saul's concerted efforts to murder David, David never sought Saul's life. He could have, been, he could have killed him many times, but he refused. Even when his men, his 600 men, encouraged him. David was not Saul's enemy, even if Saul was convinced that he was. To David, this is a tragedy. He would not rejoice at the death of Saul. Sure, Saul took away David's wife. Sure, Saul tried to kill David multiple times. Sure, Saul made David a, a, ref, a fugitive. But, but Saul was God's anointed. David refused to touch God's anointed. David and his 600 men mourned until sundown, ripping their shirts and pouring dirt on their heads. They grieved for Israel. They are Israel. They grieved over the humiliation of God's people. This is a catastrophic grief. Verse 13. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Church, battlefield messengers had a unique responsibility and a unique privilege. If they brought good news, they could be in for a big reward. And that's what this young man was hoping for. But the Amalekite misjudged David. David smelled a rat. Tell, tell me again, where did you come from again? Oh, so, so you're a resident alien in Israel. You're a non-Israelite living in Israel. You're an Amalekite, but you don't belong to the Amalekites. You gave up that citizenship so you could belong to Israel. Uh, I see. Well, tell me this. How did you forget the laws of Israel that commanded you not to touch the Lord's anointed? David interrogates him. We have no record of the man ever answering this question. I think he's in shock. Verse 15, then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. <laughs> I'm betting this Amalekite is like, whoa, wait a minute. Did I, did I say that I killed Saul? What I had meant was, see, we know he fabricated this story. David doesn't. We do know he had, he had, in fact, not killed Saul. He had just claimed he did. What a tragically, terrifyingly stupid miscalculation. Just as David had struck down the other Amalekites, he did the same with this one. He did the work Saul failed to do. He killed the Amalekite. Verse 16. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. The messengers received loud and clear, Do not mess with the Lord's anointed. Church, let me back out of the passage just for a moment. There is a warning here for religious hucksters. Those who attempt to use the death of the anointed for personal gain. All right, back in the text. The Hebrew term for anointed is Mashiach, from which we get our English word, Messiah. The Greek translation is Christos, from where we get our English, Christ. In other words, the verse is saying, you don't touch God's Messiah, little m. 
You don't mess with God's Christ, little c. It's a theme that will continue into the New Testament. And here's what I was wondering this week, or last week while studying it. If David ever found, found out the truth about how Saul died, I wonder if before he went to heaven, he ever found out this Amalekite was lying. Probably not. Let's look at the passage breakdown. Arrival of the Amalekite, that's verses 1 and 2. Conversation involving three questions, that's verses 3 through 10. A reaction, 11 and 12. Conversation involving two questions, verses 13 and 14. Elimination of the Amalekite, verse 15 and 16. See, the structure begins with the arrival of the Amalekite, and it ends with the elimination of the Amalekite. In the middle, you have sandwiched there a conversation involving three questions and a conversation involving two questions. This is chiastic structure to show you the middle, the most important event in the chapter. The main point of this chapter is David's grief for Saul. His reaction to the news, the king is dead. Now, what we have beginning in verse 17 until the end is that grief in poem form. Notice verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book, Jasher. David wore all the signs of genuine grief. What we find following here is a lamentation. It's a beautiful, heroic lament. David, as the sweet psalmist of Israel, begins to give a eulogy for Saul. It's powerful, passionate poetry. A lament distilled into a poem. Actually, it's, a, it's an elegy, not a, not a eulogy. A eulogy is a speech for the dead. An elegy is a poem for the dead. David, being a singer-songwriter, puts on paper one of the most moving expressions of mourning ever penned. A funeral hymn, if you like. There are three stanzas, each introduced by the phrase, How the mighty have fallen. Verse 19, how the mighty have fallen. 25, how the mighty have fallen. 27, how the mighty have fallen. David instructs, he wants this song taught to the people. Adults are to memorize the lyrics. Learn it by heart and sing it by heart. Parents are to teach their children this song. We have a copy of it in 2 Samuel, but there's also a copy in the book Jashur, or Yashur, as I've heard it pronounced on occasions. It's not a missing book of the Bible. Don't think that. David wanted it cross-published. This book is is an extra-biblical source no longer in existence. It was apparently a book of poetry commemorating the great events in Israel's national history. This book, mentioned elsewhere in, in the Bible, Joshua 10, was obviously familiar to the original audience. David and his company are to eulogize the fallen king, to put cadence to pain. We'll read it a stanza at a time. Verse 19. Your glory, O Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You may remember that David caused the Israelite women to sing and dance in the streets when he killed Goliath, the Philistine giant. 
David is in Ziklag, Philistine territory. He hears the Philistine women now dancing in the streets and singing because Israel's giant has fallen. There, there, there was a time when Gath was mourning, but now Gath is singing. Don't post the news in the streets of Ashkelon. CNN from Philistia running the reports of Israel's defeat, spreading the good news. The, the, the Philistine press releases are going out and spreading the news of Israel's defeat. David simply cannot stand hearing all the victory celebrations. Verse 21. You mountains of Gilboa. This is a, a mountain range about eight miles long. This is where Saul died. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. Shields were prepared for battle and, and oiled. This made the outer surface slippery, which would have enhanced their effectiveness in deflecting weapons. Very beneficial in hand-to-hand -hand combat. This is poetic language here. Saul's shield was not rubbed with oil. The anointed had an unanointed shield. Hear the anointing theme running throughout? Verse 22. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan died courageously in battle, doing what they were supposed to do, protecting God's people. They are memorialized in this song. All nations have songs memorializing their, their fallen heroes. Israel is no different. Our country is no different. Jonathan's bow and Saul's sword, neither were in vain. David is honoring their service to their nation. Verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. David speaks to different entities. Mountains, he wants the very land to mourn. Women, Saul clothed you, bejeweled you. He spared no expense in, in making you elegant. In other words, the people of God experienced prosperity for a long time under Saul's rule. When the tide rises, all boats rise. His leadership brought prosperity that the nation enjoyed. And now he's calling for national mourning. The second stanza is introduced by the same words, verse 25. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan, was, Jonathan lies slain on his high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. David switches to first person here. He's grieving the loss of his friend. Jonathan has fallen in the thick of battle. It was common in funeral dirges to, to name and address the deceased. And that's what's happening here. But what did David say about Jonathan? Did, did you catch that? Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. What does that mean? It's a bit uncomfortable, isn't it? If one of you guys 
came up to me at the end of service and you said, Kyle, your love to me surpasses the love of a woman. I'd be like, officer, could we tase this man? <laughs> or FFC security, could we put a bullet in this man? In Jesus' name. Our cringe at this statement really reveals a lot about our impoverished view of friendship in our culture. Is this hinting at a homoerotic relationship between David and Jonathan? Does this have homosexual overtones? To read homosexuality into this statement is simply ridiculous. And I find these repeated attempts unconvincing. Our modern society's impulse to defend and justify and minimize homosexual sin has led some to this wild conclusion. This is not talking about sexuality, but fidelity. Hebrew has a word for sexual activity, and it's not found here. David did not say, your love has replaced the love of a woman. In addition, if David had a downfall in his life, it wasn't loving men too much. It was loving women too much. You're going to see that later. Homosexual behavior was both abhorrent to the biblical writer and the original reader. We need to see this as poetic. It's speaking of the camaraderie soldiers have in battle. Now some of you soldiers are like, dude, I'm often in foxholes with other guys. We never say that to one another. Well, your army culture in the 21st century is different than this warrior culture in the Old Testament. 3,000 years separate the two. There was a deeper sense of brotherhood. They fought together side by side, hand to hand combat. In addition, sadly, marriages for high ranking political leaders like David were sometimes a matter of political expedience. David's words here, I believe, have covenantal connotations. Covenantal connotations. Jonathan was, Saul's, was the king's son, an heir apparent to the throne. He should have been the rival of David, but instead he was totally devoted to David becoming king in Israel. The plan was for Jonathan to be David's right-hand man when the kingdom transitioned. He knew David was God's new anointed, not him. He stood against his father defending David. He risked his life for David. He's a friend par excellence. This bond transcended family. Their commitment to each other and love for each other was rooted in God's unfolding plan for the anointed. David knows he's lost a faithful friend. Few things are more delightful in the world than God-honoring friendships. The third stanza is one line, verse 27. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Where is the bow of Jonathan? Where is the sword of Saul? Saul's gigantic sword is still lying in the war-torn slopes of Gilboa. The weapons of war lost. Okay, church, let's try to bring it home. Some closing applications. People have preached this text and come away with some <laughs> very unique takeaways. Like this one, this is my favorite. Here's instruction on how to talk about someone at their funeral. This is what David was doing to Saul. What? Let's see if we can do better. Application number one. This is not the only time Israel would have a king that died. This is not the only time Israel would have a king that died. 
A thousand years after the death of Saul, there was another death. And as with Saul, the hopes of the people rested in him. Jesus died a death surprisingly like the death of Saul. There was death followed by two days of suspense. For two days, the future was uncertain. What happened on the third day? It was announced of Saul, the king is dead. It was announced of Jesus, the king is risen. What God, I want you to get this. This is probably the most important line today. What God planned to do with Jesus was so big, it took massive preparation. What God planned to do with Jesus was so big, it took massive preparation. Let's find it. Let's identify the place of 2 Samuel 1 in the unfolding drama of redemption. Let's do it like this. The Bible begins with a missing king. In Genesis through Judges, there is no king. There is a missing king. Then the Bible moves to a bad king. In 1 Samuel. His name? Saul. And as you've already seen today, we've, we've begun the transition to a better king in 2 Samuel. What is his name? David. But as God's plan unfolds, we find the final king in the New Testament, Jesus Christ. What we are reading is a succession narrative that doesn't stop until Jesus comes. He's the king the people have been longing for. He's the true anointed one, the future Messiah. Now, before we move on, non-Christians. Preaching the David story in a Christ-centered way, it's very important for you. And here's why. David can't save you. Only Christ can. So why would I tell you to imitate him? You can't save yourself by acting like David. And that's why you must today, right now, come to the better David. Put your faith in Christ and believe in him. Application number two. To the grieving. The Bible teaches you how to grieve without sin. To the grieving. The Bible teaches you how to grieve without sin. Are there people in our church who are grieving? I could open up my phone and show you text messages. And it's, it's full of you who are grieving. There could be a million reasons why your heart is grieving this morning. We don't need to get into all the options. We just need to know that you're grieving. There is a such thing as good grief. Remember Charlie Brown? <laughs> he had it right. David modeled good grief for us. This was a theological grief. He doesn't vomit out feelings, but chooses words. Thoughtful grief, carefully selected and crafted. David grieves emotionally, and intellectually. He constructs careful words and fastens them to his raw emotion. 
Who promised you on earth there would be no grief? Ziklag isn't out of the ordinary. Ziklag is the ordinary. I see in 2 Samuel a world full of grief. And church, if you're going to make it, you're going to have to learn to process grief in a way that strengthens your walk with God. You're going to have to connect your grief with the promises of God. And while you're in grief, let me, let me just remind you of this. Don't forget that Jesus bore the ultimate grief for you. Your sin on a cross. I've got another application. But I feel like this is where we should end it. Let's stand together. Father, use this text to mature us in Christ. This is the purpose of the preaching event. That your word would mature us in Christ. Show us the glories of Christ. And make us dependent on Christ. Father, your word has accomplished all three things today. And we give you glory for this. Church, let's sing.